Hello and welcome to the Alien Gazing Podcast. This is the unique show where we dive into various UFO and alien topics while featuring music from a wide variety of underground shoegaze, new gaze, grunge gaze, and dream pop artists. My name is Nick Sedella and I play in the band Saucers Over Washington and I am joined by my buddy and co-host of the podcast, Tom Schneider, also known as Hollow Silhouette. How the heck are you doing today, Tom? Doing fantastic. It's a lovely day on a Sunday. <laughs> it it is a Sunday, and I see you have a uh, a Mike's Hard Lemonade with you today. Yes, yeah, it's um it's a Florida thing. <laughs> it is definitely Florida. We are feeling very Florida today. Actually, not so much because it's actually kind of cold today, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a it's a hoodie kind of day for sure. Definitely, definitely hoodie weather. But anyways, so uh, this is going to be episode four of the Alien Gazing podcast. And today's episode will actually end up likely being a two-parter because we are going to be taking an in-depth look at the documentary Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers. We'll be going through most of the main events of the documentary while providing some of our thoughts and opinions on it. So needless to say, if you haven't seen the documentary yet, this is your spoiler warning. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, we'll also be starting out the show today with a new segment that we're titling UFOs in the News, where we'll briefly dish out the morning tea on the latest UFO developments making their rounds in the mainstream media machine. But before diving into all of that, let's go ahead and feature our first song for today's episode. And our first song today is called Wonder by the band Audio Baton. <laughs> Thank you. 
bopping right now? Because I am absolutely bopping to that song. Ah, maybe it's the fuzz, man. Because I, I, that is such a great fuzz tone. And uh, you know, if you're listening to the podcast, you know how much I love fuzz tones. And honestly, just big guitar tones in general. Even when I was a kid and I just loved pop punk, you know, there was nothing better to me than just big, loud, distorted guitars. And anyway, that tune, oh, love that guitar sound. So good. And anyways, <laughs> the song was called Wonder by the band Audio Baton. You can find their music on Spotify, Apple Music, Bandcamp. Uh, you can follow them on Instagram. Um, it's just spelled the normal way, all one word, Audio Baton. And when I reached out to them to ask them if they wanted to be featured on the podcast, they wanted me to let everyone out there know that they are currently working on some new music as we speak. So definitely check them out and be following them for all the stuff they got coming up. And now, back to the show. Hello and welcome back to the Alien Gazing Podcast. Uh, We are going to go ahead and dive into our first segment for today's episode. And that segment is called UFOs in the news we're starting off ufos in the news today with our first uh topic which is that ufo disclosure in the covid 19 stimulus bill so basically what's going on here is stuffed into the covid 19 stimulus bill that was passed on december 21st uh 2020 uh was an addition inside it that required the u.s intelligence agencies to provide all available information about ufos within 180 days after the bill passes so since that bill passed in late december we're looking at the support coming out whatever it's going to be coming out around late June to early July, which is also rather interesting, as early July would mark the 74th anniversary of the Roswell crash in 1947, the one that started it all. So, good timing, and we will definitely keep you guys updated on how that's going. So, my reaction to hearing this, it made me think about uh, the controversial UFO figure, uh, Stephen Greer, uh, who, if you're not familiar, he has done many documentaries uh, in the UFO subject, in the UFO realm. Uh, most recently, his documentary called Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, where he talks about this method he's created f- for communicating with these EBEs, extraterrestrials, and whatnot. So anyway, so this is uh, something from his Twitter account. He says, quote, The subject matter of ETI, extraterrestrial intelligence, is subjected to disinformation propagating a false threat narrative across all mainstream news media. The only threat the ET presence creates is towards the military-industrial complex and their dominion, control, and influence over our sovereignty and our planet. So that's kind of interesting because if it turns out that in 180 days when we do get this uh, disclosure, if it ends up culminating in some sort of false flag UFO event, then I guess that proves he's been right about this because he's he's been talking about this for a long time. So we're definitely going to cover more information about Stephen Greer and another episode, but that was what I thought about um, in regards to this. How about you, Tom? How, when you heard this news, how did you, how did you feel about it? Um, slightly confused, uh, but at the same time, it makes sense. Just because the world's kind of changing, there are bigger things that need to be unveiled. You know, obviously, but yeah, it's kind of like 
I'm still kind of like, it is sort of strange that they would put it into the stimulus bill or whatever, but I don't know. It's just, let's see where it goes. Like, you know, I'm very curious. Do you think that um, the information will be factual and confirm uh, extraterrestrial beings are here? Or do you think it'll be something a little bit more vanilla, we'll say? Well, it, you know, it all depends on like how you look at it, I guess. But um, I mean, I, I remember um, being fascinated with the fact of star children like back in the day and like how aliens came down and impregnated women. And like there's these like the idea of like these like really smart um, individuals, you know, um, and some might argue that, you know, our world leaders might be star children, which I, you know, and, but that topic has always kind of fascinated me and it would be kind of interesting if that was kind of like revealed that, oh, there's, there are in fact star children among us and it wasn't not fantasy, you know? So I don't know. I, it, but it could be vanilla. Like they could just be like, oh, you know, or they could, you know, like you were saying, like the false flag deal. I, I can't lie. Um, I'm not saying that like the false flag thing is going to happen or that it is going to, that's just something that Stephen Greer is saying. But I will say that uh, of all the quote unquote false flag things that could ever happen, this is the only one where I'm a little bit like, kind of want to sit in my lawn chair and just see it play out. I'm curious if they, <laughs> if, if that makes sense. Obviously I wouldn't want anybody to get hurt. Right. But I don't know if it's like one of those my idea of a false flag UFO event is like a, a big UFO shows up and then like a big giant rocket like knocks it out of the sky and it's like no one gets hurt, but everyone gets the message of, oh my God, the aliens are here. We need to give money to the military. More money. Yeah. Military. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah. The war in Spain. <laughs> right, right. Which would be like scary, but also kind of like, I mean, a little entertaining. It's like a little bit. I mean, yes, last year felt like we were in like some sort of like horrible movie. The next step above that would be like we're in some sort of entertaining, but also horrible movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyways, uh, speaking of, of uh, disclosing UFO information, the next piece of news we have is the website called The Black Vault has just released a treasure trove of declassified UFO documents, amassing a total of 2,780 pages. These pages were the culmination of the work of the Black Vault's John Greenwald Jr., who runs uh, that website. Uh, he received uh, the documents through many years' worth of Freedom of Information Act requests. And if you are listening to this and you're not familiar with the Freedom of Information Act, uh, it is an act that, pa that got passed many, many years ago that basically allows regular citizens to put in requests for access to certain declassified documents. Um, I think it's ideally supposed to be all of them, but there's of course some sort of stipulation in there where, you know, if it has to deal with ongoing investigations or ongoing classified things that the, uh, the request wouldn't have to be honored. But in any case, those just all went out. Tom, have you heard this? Have you checked any of them out? What's your, how do you feel about this? Yeah, no, um, it's actually very interesting. Um, 
I have to go in and actually like look at everything, but yeah, it's just really weird that again, like they're releasing all this stuff and it's, it is almost like a countdown to like, you know, what's going to happen in 180 days. Like, I don't think it's coincidence, it, you know, got released. So it'll be definitely interesting to see where that goes. So when I first read about this, I was confused a little bit because I thought that it was like the CIA was specifically putting them out. But actually, it's not that the CIA or whatever government agency is putting them out. It's that this one guy, John Greenwald, he he did these Freedom of Inf Information Act requests. He got those documents because he was the one who made the request, and now he's making them public. So this wasn't necessarily a um, something that the government put out there, but it's so much... The government did put it out there, but they put it, they directed it to this one person, and this one person had all these files on like a CD-ROM, if you can remember what that is. <laughs> I, I'm saying that's mostly our audience, because Tom and I are both 90s kids. We, <laughs> we're very familiar with the CD-ROM. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, so yeah, so I, I haven't had a chance to view them myself, but I definitely plan to, and I would encourage any of our audience out there listening, if you are interested, just go to www.theblackvault.com, and you can access all those documents, as well as a huge plethora of other declassified documents that were obtained by John Greenwald through the Freedom of Information Act. And actually, I don't know if every single thing on there is is owned or was tracked by, down by John Greenwald, but in any case, it's a really great uh, resource for Black Vault information. <laughs> cool. So that's pretty much it for uh, UFO UFOs in the news. Uh, we're going to go ahead and play another song right before we do our main segment where we will be diving deep into the Bob Lazar documentary. So stick around for that and for this next song. <laughs> And this next track is going to be featuring a band that has already been featured on the podcast once before. The band is Sad Halen, and they're from Orlando, Florida, my current locale. And this song is called Kids. Didn't really bother to get hot and bothered you 
and another solid track by the band Sad Halen. That song was called Kids, and it was actually part of an EP they released recently in the past couple of weeks. Uh, You can find that EP on Bandcamp. And as well on Bandcamp, you can find a couple of demos they've just put out um, literally within the past like week or so. So they're definitely very active right now. So make sure you are following them. And I'll just add that uh, Ziggy, the guitar player, you know, that song and pretty much all the songs that he tends to write just has just super awesome guitar candy. At least that's what I call it. Just like really cool uh, riffage going on um, all throughout the track. But anyways, I'm getting sidetracked. Let's get back to the show. All right. Welcome back to the Alien Gazing Podcast. And now we are going to dive into our main segment today, which is we are going to give you some commentary and kind of a general rundown of the entire Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers documentary. So we're going to go ahead and start off with some just general impressions of the documentary, how we felt about it. Um, just in general, and then we'll go ahead and start our deep dive into the documentary. And our deep dive may end up taking more than just this episode, um, but we'll be sure to announce at the end of this episode when you can find the next episode uh, afterwards. So uh, with that being said, let's go ahead and start with you, Tom. So uh, this was my second time watching the documentary, your first. So for your first time watching this documentary, um, what were your some of your general impressions? How'd you feel about it? How'd you feel about the information, the documentary in general? Share your thoughts. Yeah, um, I really actually thought it was very fascinating. Um, and you know, my I had narrated by uh, Mickey York. You know, I yeah, I thought it was very uh, it was very well done, and um, I learned a lot about the S four and. Bob Lazar and what he did and and that guy is a really cool guy like the things he made like like uh, the, the 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 rocket like bike he made in there and so I don't know so I, th- I thought the the documentary was very well done I gotta be honest with you I'm a little conflicted because so this is the second time I watched it and it's also the second documentary done by Jeremy Corbell that I've ever watched. Um, did you happen to see the Skinwalker Ranch, the Hunt for Skinwalker documentary? No, I actually, I, I've been meaning to check that out, but I haven't yet. So that is also another documentary done by Jeremy Corbell, who did this one. And Jeremy Corbell is the is like the main interviewer um, throughout the entirety of this movie or this documentary. So my qualms with Jeremy Corbell is a documentary filmmaker in general are this. He chooses fascinating, amazing subjects, but the way that he presents them and the way he organizes information, for me, it leaves a lot to be desired. There's a couple of things that happened in this that also happened in the Skinwalker Ranch documentary that really bothered me. They don't bother me in the sense that like I think it was a bad artistic choice. It's more like it bothers me because I feel like If you're trying to craft a documentary to open people up to the idea of accepting this information, I feel like there are certain things that he does that just get in the way of that. For example, there are a lot of segments in this documentary where he interviews people on his cell phone. It's literally like a camera looking at him on the phone with some guy, which is to me, it's just like, you're doing a documentary. 
just get in the room with the guy. Come on. <laughs> I thought the same thing about that. Uh, he was definitely going for the drama and the, the cinematic, which is gr- great. Uh, but, you know, as much as I loved the narration of from Mickey York, I, I thought that was a very uh, interesting um, choice. Yeah, like Mickey. So Mickey Rourke having uh, a narration. That's cool. That's great. Give Mickey Rourke some work. That's badass. I'm into it. However, like looking at this documentary as like a piece of art, I adore it to pieces. Um, But looking at it as like a documentary that's trying to convince someone of a very, very wild thing. You know, there's a lot of wild stuff in this documentary and you want to try and convince people. So the least you could do is not make it feel like this acid trip like with some of like the narration with like the poetry and stuff like that which again as someone who appreciates art and poetry and all that kind of stuff i love it i dig it but for you know the average person who isn't you know into aliens it might come off as like really cheesy or like so weird and almost like culty and i don't know if anybody else out there feels similar but certainly what this documentary covers is what I love about it and what makes it the most interesting thing to me. Um, and I, all the information is good. It's just that the way it's presented for me is where I, I get a little bit like, ah, damn. Because it's not even like I'm upset about it. It's more like I just I wish it was a little bit, it felt a little more grounded uh, because ultimately I would like for this information to be less uh, taboo, to be less relegated to the to what seems like the fringes i like for it to feel more legit that's one of the things i like about the to the star stuff that's happening but when sometimes when you dress up the information the way that he does in this documentary it can kind of scare some people off and that's what i don't want and that that's what i think could have could have been better in this documentary now that all being said the fact that this documentary exists at all is perfect i'd rather have this documentary than not have it at all yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, it, yeah, it's great that it exists and and it's accessible to the masses on Netflix. You know, for somebody that's novice and uh, just wants something fun to watch and learn something, it's it's a great piece of documentary work. Um, but yeah, I guess my only gripe where, you know, thinking about it right now, I wish there was more of like a rebuttal. Because it was all about him and, you know, Bob and his life and, you know, how he went and, you know, opened up the floodgates, basically. And then, but that's just it. Like, it's just, you know, (laughs) that's it. Like, there isn't, like, another person. Yeah, you you don't really get to get someone who has a contrasting view. When you're creating a documentary... It's not just entertainment, you know, you're trying to inform someone about a piece of information and how effective the documentary is, is based off of how you present that information, uh, as well as giving people some evidence that you are a credible source. And one of the ways you do that is you have some contrast, you have some conflicting views, and then you present the, you show those in your argument and then you refute them to bolster your argument so yeah i agree with you i think having a little bit of that would have made this overall better but for what it's worth i think that jeremy corbell i think i see him more as like an artist than a documentary filmmaker because definitely as a piece of like entertainment that is also informative this is also great um 
when I was uh, teaching for a little while, I actually had a couple of students who watched the documentary and were really into it. So I guess maybe maybe he was trying to hit that 15 to 25, you know, coming of age kind of range. And I think that that's a good demographic for this type of documentary. But if, if it was handled with a little bit more seriousness, I think it could have hit uh, a, a wider one. But in any case, still glad that we have it, <laughs> regardless. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. So let's go ahead and dive in. So uh, in this deep dive, we're essentially going to be kind of looking at pretty much all the main events of the documentary and then just kind of talking about them, giving our, some of our commentary and stuff. So... So yeah. All right. So Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers, directed by Jeremy Corbell. So right from the beginning, we get some narration from Mickey Rourke. Again, I mentioned this earlier that I felt like it was a little bit cheesy, but still cool because Mickey Rourke. Um, and it actually begins with an FBI raid of Bob Lazar's private business. Uh, we see a cell phone conversation, which gives us Jeremy and Bob's quote-unquote raw reaction. Uh, and then this cuts to the original interview uh, that Bob Lazar did way back in 1989, where he originally blew the whistle on Area 51. Um, so I also want to mention real quickly that this documentary also covers a lot of information that you can read about in Bob Lazar's autobiography, um, which I listened to earlier Uh, earlier this year and overall i think the story is a little bit more coherent and better organized in that okay and then we get our introduction to george knapp now george knapp was the person who uh, originally broke the story of bob lazar having worked at area 51 he broke it for a local las vegas news tv station so george knapp was a reporter back in las vegas in the 80s and 90s and he covered a lot of like uh crime stories uh so this was the first story that george knapp covered that dealt with such a hot ufo you know type of topic and i can't speak for him personally obviously i don't know the guy but the only book he ever wrote was the skinwalker ranch book so i like to think that maybe this was his introduction to paranormal stuff so interesting guy who often gets written off as like a crazy cons- uh like a not a cons- crazy conspiracy kook but you know in that camp when he's not really i mean he was an investigative reporter for years and then this, no. this just kind of dropped in his lap so anyway we get an introduction to george knapp and then we get our introduction to bob and in my notes here i wrote that bob's demeanor seems to communicate that what he's talking about is difficult and exhausting to discuss and this is something that for me, made me feel like he was legit, partially because that affect is different from when I see other people who I'd consider much less credible who seem to bathe in the spotlight. So, for example, like you think of people who, you know, who have like UFO experiences, you know, some of them, I'm not saying all of them, but some of them can get a little bit eccentric, which doesn't invalidate their experience. But certainly when someone makes a point to put on a show, about an experience they've had, I'm less inclined to believe them because it seems like it could be a cry for attention or something like that. Um, but Bob Lazar doesn't seem to have that. He His demeanor seems to communicate. He seems exhausted, you know, talking about it. So that's one, that's one thing that makes me feel a little 
more confident in his uh, credibility. Anyway, this goes into how he came to work at the base. Um, he received something called majestic clearance in order to to work on this uh, this information, and that's an interesting point because majestic. There is this thing in UFO uh, history about the Majestic Twelve, these twelve people in the government, in the American government, who were supposedly like the gatekeepers of the UFO information within the secret agencies of the government. So interesting that that was the name of his clearance, Majestic. Um, and then we also get a brief mention of Element One Fifteen. And then this goes into one of the first cell phone interviews that are peppered throughout this. It's an inter interview uh, with George Knapp. So this is George Knapp speaking to Jeremy Corbell, the director of the documentary, discussing his experience interviewing Bob Lazar and the reaction of the public sphere afterwards. And he says, quote, it put Area 51 on the map. This then segues into an interview with one of Bob Lazar's neighbors, Mario Santa Cruz. And we see footage of him talking about his initial reaction to Bob, knowing him as the Jet Dragster. And this is where we begin getting into the fact that Bob Lazar, for fun, he kind of builds like these jet cars, which is super badass. I mean, I mean, he's got he's got this experience having worked at Area 51. And what does he do in his spare time? Oh, just makes jet cars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually, that's going to be that's going to be much more important as we go for uh, as we go forward as well. And then we, after this, we get a a brief discuss uh, discussion from Mario about how Bob discussed being shot at, and that Bob kept a weapon around because he got his tires shot out while he was driving on the highway. So. We'll get into that in a little bit because there's a little more detail behind it. And again, all this information, one of my critiques about this documentary is the way the information is organized. It is, to me, a little bit of a mess. But that autobiography that Bob Lazar wrote is great. It's perfect because it's it's laid out. It's his personal experience and it's laid out very straightforward as the events happen. It's a lot easier to follow is what I'm saying. So... All that to say is we'll get into the element of him getting his tires shot out in just a little bit. But that actually does relate to why he wanted to come out with this information is because he was fearing for his life. So he part of the reason he revealed to the world that he worked at Area 51 and that we were backwards engineering alien craft was because he felt his life was in danger at one point. Again, we'll get into that in a little bit. And then we see a look at an interview with his mom talking about Bob, how he likes to make jet cars and just wants him to be happy. We see an interview with his wife where she says he doesn't make stuff up uh, and they don't know the real Bob. She said that in reference to people who would attack his character. They don't know the real Bob is what her reaction to that is. And then we see an interview with an employee of Bob's at Bob's shop called United Nuclear. So he actually, uh, currently, he he owns this uh, the shop where he makes or he sells all sorts of like lab type of equipment. That's the best way I could um, put it. Like I think one of the things he sells is like barium. But yeah, like high level lab products uh, for making stuff. So that's his company, United Nuclear. So... Then we hear him talk about this nuclear toy and how there was a, a toy in the 50s or 60s that was apparently considered one of the most 
it now is considered one of the most dangerous toys, but back then they didn't really care. They just put it out there. And it was basically an, uh, a very a very small nuclear uh, science kit. And Bob's thing about this is that it's not that the toy is unsafe. It's just people's fear. Because if you know how to use it, it's not unsafe. You know, so that's, um, and I think that that's kind of like the theme of the documentary, that it's not that the information about UFOs existing is dangerous. That's just people's fear. That's just my interpretation. I don't know if that's the actual real thing. You have to ask Jeremy uh, Corbell about that. Uh, anyway, so then this leads to Bob talking about how he really enjoyed the work he did while he worked at Area 51. And this to me shows that, you know, he's a scientist at heart and what fueled him to even be there in the first place at Area 51 was just his pursuit of knowledge. He wanted to know how the craft worked. We then hear him talk about what it was like to work there. Or not what it was like to work there, but what it was like to interact with this technology. So, again, one of the reasons why I don't like this documentary is because I don't think that information is presented clearly. So at this point, you may be listening to this and you may have no idea who Bob Lazar is, what he's done to be famous and all that kind of stuff. So since at this point it hasn't become super clear um, from the notes of the documentary, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Bob Lazar was a physicist who, who was around in the late 80s who got recruited by uh, some sort of third-party company. Uh, we'll go into the details of that uh, as we go through the documentary stuff. But basically, he got contracted to work for the government. He didn't know where until he sh- had to go to Area 51 at a specific site called S4, uh, which is where he worked and was working for a while until he started getting... He started feeling a little bit unsafe because of some things that we'll talk about, one of them being that the way that he works there is they call him when they need him, and they call him at all sorts of different hours, and eventually the call stopped coming, and that's what caused him to get scared. The call stopped coming, so he thought, okay, they're not reaching out to me, and then all of a sudden he gets his car shot at uh, while on the highway, and he starts thinking, okay, stuff is adding up, I need to do something about this. And so he ends up uh, contacting the news station that George Knapp worked at and uh, arranged for a masked interview, like an interview where you don't see his face. And then he later did a full interview and kind of came out as a public figure for this. And, and then all all of our information about Area 51 kind of comes from his coming out about it in the early in the early 90s. I think it was 89 or 90. So that's the basic rundown of who Bob Lazar is, and this documentary is just kind of diving into the meat of it. So with that being said, we're at about 31 minutes and 50, uh, 50 uh, seconds into the documentary when Bob starts talking about what it was like to interact with this alien technology. He makes a comparison to bringing a small nuclear reactor back to the scientists of the Victorian times and what would happen if they could see that it worked and decided to try and figure out for themselves how it worked? Well, we know the result. They would all die and have no idea why because of the toxic reactions that would result from the disruption of its intended use. So he used this analogy to compare 
his experience of working with the technology. He says, quote, the first time Barry showed me the reactor in operation, he said, try and touch the sphere on top. And you couldn't. Your hand was pushed away, just like in two poles of a magnet. It was the exact same feeling. There was no metal involved, and that's shocking. That's really shocking because nothing does that. That's an operating, powerful force field. So just seeing something like that immediately starts the whole chain reaction in your mind going, wow, wait, if you can do this, there could be force fields on tanks. There could be things that lift off the ground. We don't need jet and rocket engines anymore. That means there's no use for cars. The whole thing changes the entire world, the economy, everything. Everything would go end on end if we had an answer to how that machine worked that I was sitting there touching. So he's talking about this in reference to, and again, the documentary doesn't make this clear, but it was clear to me because I listened to the audiobook of Bob's um, autobiography, and he's talking about this small object um, that when he first came to the base, the person he was working with, his name was Barry, his co-worker, I guess you could say, basically showed him this, uh, I think it was a pyramid shape. It was like a pyramid shaped object. And it elicited these properties. Properties. When you tried to touch it, you literally couldn't. It was like he said, it was like trying to put two like ends of a magnet together. And they can't touch. And then he goes on to say this, there's life somewhere else. It's a big deal. It's an important part of human history that we found that out. It was awesome, but fearsome at the same time. It was being completely fucking scared all day long. It's not exactly the most fun job when you're there. Almost three decades later, the fear drops off and you're just left with the amazement at the technology you were exposed to. We have an artifact here from another civilization. We're all looking for an answer. Having physical proof is an awful big deal. So let's just talk about this stuff so far. So, I mean, he's just gone ahead and said it. We have alien technology in our midst. Quote unquote, if this is true, that means that we're dealing with another alien civilization. They're here. That is, that's it. Coming from someone as credible as Bob Lazar himself, this is just, it's amazing. Um, And it's something that I've believed for a long time. And it's different when you see someone who is talking about their own personal experience, who is like a regular civilian. When you have a physicist talking about this stuff, it rings with a different sound. Uh, It just feels more legit. Anyway, I've talked uh, our listeners ear off for uh, for a minute and a half. Um, so far, what are your thoughts um, at this point in the documentary? Um, I think it's kind of sort of like this guy Bob wants to, you know, get his story out, and he's so passionate enough that he wants to, you know, he wants to come forward because he's scared for his life and. I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of it. Like, because he's come across this thing that is otherworldly. And it's just like, holy crap, like, this is bigger than me. This is bigger than, you know, planet Earth. And so I think that's kind of it. And he's a smart guy. He just wanted to come forward. And um, to kind of go back to his initial 
interview where his, his face is like blacked out and he's sitting in the news van. That was actually very chilling just for the standpoint of, you know, here's a guy, you know, who basically came forward and things were already happening. And, um, you know, it's just kind of like one of those deals where you have to get the info information out, you know, like, I know it doesn't dis discuss, but his civic duty to get it out too. Cause, cause it's like, if we're in fact have alien technology, I wouldn't feel right keeping that to myself, especially if it would essentially help, you know, to blow the lid off something for the greater good. And I know that wasn't really his case. He just wanted to, he was kind of done with it. That's kind of how I feel about him and the documentary so far. I couldn't even imagine like he's being in his shoes to be like, yeah, you know, I uh, work uh, for this government facility and uh, they're doing weird things, <laughs> you know, so in, a, in a way. <laughs> But yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the, the autobiography makes it much more clear, like some of the things that he was dealing with. So, um, and I think that he talks a little bit about it in the documentary, but um, so there were at the time in 1989 in his autobiography, he talked about these two Russian people who were following him a lot. And there was no, there was no clear information about like who shot out his tires, but my suspicion is that maybe at this period of time, there's a lot of awkwardness that he experienced, uh, Bob Lazar did, partially because he's dealing with people in the government that are very sworn to secrecy. So they can't really be as open as, you know, Bob would like them to be. In, in the sense of giving Bob straightforward information about, you know, threats to his life. At one point, this uh, this worker from the government, who was kind of like his boss um, while he worked at Area 51, his boss told him, you should get a gun and keep it with you at all times, you know? And Bob's like, why? And he's like, the boss is just like, you should do it. <laughs> you know, it's very vague. So in addition to like working on this, really wild stuff you know there's also like this secret agent crap going on in the background and like you know yeah. again you see it in the impression so far in the documentary you see it also in the way he talks about this you know Bob Lazar he just wanted to just do his work he just wanted to do his work and do it well and he didn't want any of the other bullshit so anyway let, let's go let's keep going forward so then we have another cell phone interview uh, with George. Actually, no, Jeremy is discussing George Knapp on it. Yes, on a cell phone call about Bob's amazement at what he was working on. And one of the things yeah. that Bob describes is he describes these things called the briefing books. And again, we get more information about this in the autobiography, but the briefing books are these files and information that Bob received once he was, you know, brought on the base to start working there. And in the clip in the in the documentary, you see a partial image of an alien, uh, like a gray alien with like the the weird shaped head and the eyes and stuff, uh, with notes on it regarding specific aspects of its body's organs and their function. 
And I wrote in my notes here that in that picture, whatever that picture is drawn on, it looks as if it was part of like a correspondence with someone. Like someone asked him, hey, you saw, you got that briefing book, right? Do you remember what the alien looked like? Can you draw me a picture of it and the stuff you remember? So that, that's what it looked like. It looked like someone asked him a question about what he saw in those briefings and he do a, did a drawing and um, gave it, it was like kind of like an anatomical drawing type of thing. Like if you were to look at an anatomical drawing of a human, you'd see like partial bones, but also partial like um, uh, organs and whatnot and labels for all of them. So it was like that. That's what the image kind of looked like. Uh, and on that, that clip, the following notes can be seen. Quote, that's all I know. You'll have to make up the rest. That's one of the notes. Another one says... Uh, next to the eyes, not level as you've drawn them. That's the other quote, which this indicates a flat lateral line across the face of the image of the EBE. And they're both written in the same handwriting. So we can assume this is probably Bob's handwriting. My best guess is that someone asked Bob to try and recall what he remembered about what he saw in the briefings and the image of an EBE with descriptions of its internal organs is what came to mind. So he drew best what he could remember. Uh, but anyway, what's emphasized in the conversation is Bob's amazement at what was inside of the briefings. Um, and then they don't really spend too much more time um, on that. But the next part is where they, they discuss this thing called the hand reader. And let me just kind of give us some context. So one of the things that Bob, in, I think he did like a total of like maybe like two or three or maybe four like major interviews regarding this stuff. And one of the things that he talked about was he talked about these, this type of hand reader um, that they had at the base, which is like a kind of a hand scanner that Bob claimed was at the base he worked at. And then at that, Jeremy produces a photo of one. Um, and this photo of this hand scanner comes from a recently declassified government document covered by the publication The Drive in a 2018 article. So again, Bob talked about this hand reader that you put your hand on and it identified you as a person who was supposed to be there at the base. He talked about this hand reader back in the, in the in the early 90s. And then this declassified uh, bit of information that was published in 2018 that shows a picture of a hand sca uh, scanner. Jeremy Corbell then produces that picture, shows it to Bob and asks him, is this what you're talking about? And Bob's reaction is genuine. He's like, wow, yeah, that's it. And the way that he described it, I mean, if you look at the picture and you look at the way he describes it before he sees it, it's legit. Um, then we get some footage of Bob's jet bike and we get some discussion of Bob's education background. Now, this is where a lot of the controversy regarding um, Bob Lazar comes into place because one of the things you would do for someone like this is you would want to investigate their educational background, right? So there is the belief that Bob's education background was erased. And we'll get into uh, we'll get into some of the why. So apparently there are some erased documents of his time working at Los Alamos Labs. And this is significant because Los Alamos Labs is a very prestigious uh, place to work at, you know, you're not going to get in there with a high school degree is the point, right? So being able to prove that Bob Lazar worked here 
is indicative that he's not lying about his uh, his college background because there is, uh, we'll get into it in a minute, but there is no records of him working at the college he said he, he attended. But let's go into this Los Alamos stuff because this is really interesting. So at Los Alamos Labs, he is listed as having worked there in one of their employee phone books from the time period that Bob Lazar said that he worked there. Another record we have is a news article from Los Alamos about Bob's jet cars, and it references him as working as a physicist at Los Alamos. However, the records of employees having worked there at Los Alamos does not include him. He's been erased from them. But the question is, well, if he didn't work there, A, why is he in the phone book from the period of time that he said he worked there? And B, why is there a news article written around the time that he was working there, which also references the fact that he worked there? Why does that exist? Mm-hmm. Right? So two bits of information that don't really seem to add up. Um, oh, and yes. So I mentioned earlier that Bob Lazar was recruited by a third party company that is like, you know, with the government. That company is EGNG. Uh, that is the name of the company that Bob claimed hired him to work at Area 51. And they also claim to have no record of his employment there as well. So then this gets into, you know, what's Bob's reaction? You know, Bob's reaction to some conspiracies and invasive questioning regarding the scant records of his education background. And in his response, you can see that he's emotional and he's he seems to be making emotional arguments, which isn't really convincing by itself because he's in the heat of an emotional state but the argument for believing that his records were wiped is as follows the likelihood that bob was hired by los alamos which all available evidence seems to point that he did work there for a period of time the idea that he would have gotten that job right out of high school is extremely unlikely additionally he had multiple friends who recall dropping him off at cal state college where he said he went to school so There was a quote that George Knapp provided. He said, well, if he didn't really go there, he certainly was making a big show of it. So this, along with the next thing we're about to talk about, are a couple of things that were done to try and bolster the fact that Bob Lazar is telling the truth, that he had nothing to gain by lying about this. And so that's what the next bit of information deals with. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because as I'm watching the documentary, both the first and second time, I kept asking myself, why is this here? And again, that's my critique, partially because of the way it's organized. It's not organized in a way that helps you you know, feel connected to it, at least for me. Of course, I have a scatterbrain, so do I now. But anyway, so this gets into the next part of the documentary where it discusses Bob's mix-up with hookers in a brothel. And the point of this bit of information being in the documentary is as as follows. Because he was involved in a minor crime, this is after the Area 51 stuff, because he was involved in a minor crime, he was forced to testify in court to things about his background. And everything that he testified in court to was all the same information he provided to the media about his background. So the logic there being, again, this happened a couple of years after 
the Area 51 stuff. So the logic is that if there was any time to quote unquote come clean on his quote unquote true background, it would have been then. As a result of their inability to verify his background, the court's, you know, the court's inability to verify his background, it nearly resulted in a harsher sentence for him. So that's the reason why that's there. Soon after he gets, he blows the whistle on Area 51 and, you know, everyone's questioning, you know, what's up with your background, dude? You know, we can't find out where you went to college and all that stuff. So if it turns out that he was lying all along, then the time to come clean would have been when he was on trial for this minor crime. And he didn't. He didn't change his story one bit. And again, why? It's two year, two or three years after the Area 51 stuff. What purpose does it serve to lie in court, which could result in you getting a harsher sentence? You know, so again, that that's another bit of information that lends the idea of his credibility uh, being legit. Uh, then we go to another cut from the old 1989 interview he did with he did on TV. Um, this was the more uh, long form and intimate interview he did openly on TV where he wasn't covered. And in that clip, he discusses what at the time he thought could have been an alien that he saw in the base. So then Jeremy Corbell, you know, in modern day asks him about that. And Bob clarifies uh, that what he saw at a glance uh, was two men in lab coats sitting across from what he believes was likely a doll meant to mimic the size of the occupant of the UFO craft. He expresses that he believed them to be analyzing something about the way in which the EBEs can fit into the craft. So what he's saying here in the modern day is that in all likelihood, what he back in 1989 thought could have been an alien being probably according to him was probably not an actual alien but rather like a little doll that they were using to figure out like how someone of that size might fit into and move around the craft so to speak he clarifies that he did not see any aliens at the base but he does clarify that people at the base had a nickname for the ets and that nickname was quote unquote, the kids. Other bit of information, interesting information there. And I've actually, I've heard this before as well. Um, in some other quote unquote classified documents that I've seen the EBEs being referred to as the kids. And again, I'm not saying that I have legit declassified stuff. But I'm saying I've seen some supposedly declassified stuff that has mentioned the kids. So interesting nonetheless. Then we get uh, the discussion of the craft and its propulsion system and that it couldn't have come from our world. Uh, it utilizes gravity and mainstream science hasn't quite figured out what gravity exactly is just yet. So the propulsion system stuff is interesting because obviously that's why he was chosen in the first place. He was chosen because he specialized in propulsion. But when they discuss it, he says that, you know, it couldn't have come from our world. So this dives into the difference between our style of propulsion and the ET crafts. So then he discusses, like he tries to like put it into layman's terms, what the difference between our mode of, of propulsion is and the ET mode of propulsion. And he says this, 
With ours, it's an action-reaction system. You do something to make something push energy or force out the back, fire or air. So the difference between that and what the ET craft is, the ET craft is a reactionless craft. It's a field propulsion craft. And again, these are all quotes from him. He says, what it does is it creates a distortion in space and time in front of it where space actually bends. And he makes an analogy. He says, put a bowling ball in the middle of your bed and then a foot in front of it, take your fist and push it down on the mattress. The bowling ball will roll towards it. And that's exactly how the craft work. It creates a distortion right in front of the craft and then falls forward. Then he gets asked, so what is the takeaway of your story after you're gone? So this is Jeremy Corbell asking Bob Lazar, what is the takeaway of your story after you're gone? And he says this, the big thing is the suppression of extremely advanced technology and the suppression of unknown science. He elaborates, yeah, there's another civilization. And like I've said before, that's a crime to not tell humanity about that. But that's a separate thing. And uh, the following is is a verbal exchange I'll read. Jeremy says, meaning that there is something different in science dramatically that we're not allowed to know, Bob, right. Jeremy, that is a true statement. Bob, that is a true statement. Jeremy, the fact that there is another technologically advanced civilization And we have their objects. Bob, that really is the pinnacle. That there is another civilization in existence that's intelligent that we know about. And we actually have artifacts from them that can operate. So that's a big, big deal. But in my mind, there's a lot to deal with with that. However, the science and technology can change us dramatically. It can change the way the entire world operates, the economy, everything. So those stick out in my mind as being critically important. Jeremy, and we have it? Bob, oh, we have them. You don't have to believe it, but we do. Jeremy, and you've seen it? Bob, I've seen it. Jeremy, and you've touched it? Bob, I've dismantled it. Very interesting. Yep. Pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm. I mean, doesn't doesn't get much wilder than that. I mean, and and it's it's straightforward. Yeah. And I don't know. Again, this for me, this speaks to his credibility because the way that he was saying this, the way he was talking about this, I've been really into the UFO st- subject for since I was like ten years old. I've seen a lot of people talk about it, and one of the things that I've noticed and which gives me pause sometimes is listening to the way that someone talks about the UFO topic because it is a very fascinating topic, obviously, and it wouldn't be outlandish for someone to get interested or excited about it. But there are certain people who, when they talk about it, it just, it comes off like a lie or it comes off like, it's drawing too much attention. Let me give you a, a decent example. Um, in the show Ancient Aliens, the the person who's probably the least credible on that show is the person who's essentially the face of it. 
Giorgio, I forget what his last name is or how do you say it. But when you when you hear him talk about stuff, I mean, like he doesn't really even make like philosophically sound arguments. Um, that's how I feel about quite a few people in the UFO community when they talk about the UFO phenomenon, which makes me pause and not necessarily take their their testimony as seriously as I would someone like Bob Lazar, who when he's talking about it, it's just matter of fact. You know, his tone, again, he, he sounds like, I'm talking about this, but it's frustrating for me because it's a difficult topic to talk about. And it is difficult, especially, you know, from his point of view, I would, I can only imagine how difficult it is. So the fact that he's talking about all this stuff, um, the way that he does it, for me, lends some credibility to his, uh, his claims. All right, now that's pretty close to the end of this episode here. So before we go ahead and end the episode, we're going to go ahead and play our last song for today's episode. And the last song for today's episode is called The Drone by the band Slow Planet. I want to Oh, 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 
actually features a member uh, from two bands that we featured on the podcast before. Uh, The member is Charlie Berger, and he is also in the band Tone Mirror, which we featured on the previous episode, and the band Slowly, which we featured on another episode as well. So this this band, Slow Planet, is a combination of Charlie and one of the other members of Tone Mirror, uh, the exact member I can't remember off the top of my head at this current moment, but in any case, they got together to form Slow Planet so they could work on music while in lockdown and quarantine last year. This song came out in May 2020, and they've since released several singles, which you can check out on their Bandcamp. So again, you can find them on Bandcamp, Spotify, And I'm not sure if they have an Instagram, but you could check. In any case, Tone Mirror and Slowly both do have Spotify's, so I imagine Slow Planet does as well. Anyways, with that being said, the episode's coming to a close, so we'll go ahead and get to our goodbyes, and that'll do do us up for this episode. All right, that is the end of part one of this two-part deep dive into the documentary Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers. Uh, We will go ahead and post episode two a week from whenever this airs. Uh, Not really airs, this gets posted. Yeah, (laughs) so uh, so part two uh, of this episode will be debuting in about a week after this one goes out. So we will see you guys in a week. And uh, Tom, you have anything to say to our viewers? Um, I can't think right now. Um, have a have a good day. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys take care out there, and don't forget, keep gazing. <laughs>